My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? We're now a few weeks out from the height of the nationwide uprising against the police. Like me, you may have experienced moments of giddiness back then at what suddenly seemed possible. The terms abolition and defunding exploded into general awareness with a speed and power that took even seasoned activists by surprise. At least two young black men have been shot by police since then, Hakeem Littleton fatally in Detroit, and Jason Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who has been paralyzed, maybe permanently. Each of these shootings has led to protests, but these have not yet swept the country, perhaps due to fatigue, or the beginning of the school year, or something else. Such waves and lulls are to be expected, however, and we may yet look back upon this summer as the beginning of the end of policing as we know it. This is also a good point for me to wrap up the first season of this podcast. It concludes with two interviews about the summer of protests in the time of Corona, with Doug McCadden, a leading scholar of social movements in the US, and Rachel Himes, an activist in the current movement and member of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA. I recorded both of these conversations a few weeks ago, just as the protests were beginning to slow down, but they seem even more relevant now. In the first of these episodes, Doug McAdam places this summer's protests in the context of the regional shifts since the 1950s within and between the Democratic and Republican parties. The Cold War also makes an appearance, as it did in the earlier conversations with Cedric Johnson. We talk also about the possible role of political polarization in the US in the country's growing income inequality. McAdam is Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Stanford University and also a co-author of 18 books and articles on race in the US, American politics, and the study of social movements. For this interview, I drew especially on the 2014 book co-authored with Karina Clues called Deeply Divided, Social Movements and Racial Politics in Postwar America. I began by asking McAdam what is historically unique about this summer's protests. Um, the protests are really quite extraordinary. Um, and in my view, almost without precedent, that is, if you think about, you know, um, prior civil rights related racial justice protests, whatever you want to call them, whether we're talking about you know, fairly recent protests, um, or if you go back to the heyday of the civil rights movement, we really, you don't see anything quite like the current protests. So let me start, you know, in the recent past, ever since Michael Brown was shot in Ferguson, Missouri in the summer of 2014, 
every celebrated kind of public um, murder, really, police or you know, yeah. police death or protest or death at the hand of, of police, you know, sparked uh, predictably two, three, four days of very angry protests in response, but overwhelmingly in the black community not much involvement by other groups outside of the black community. Uh, if you go back to the Haiti of the civil rights movement, I mean, people you know, generally think there was lots of white support for the movement. I, I might even dispute that. There mm. was certainly some level of white support, especially during the early 60s when the major campaigns were focused on segregation in the South. But there wasn't, there, in terms of active white participation in civil rights protests. There was, there was very, very little of that. So the demographic diversity of the current protests is really striking. And I'm, it's, I'm high, it's not just uh, white Americans, obviously. Um, you know, lots of Hispanics, Asians, et cetera. It's, it really has been very multiracial. Um, and that's extraordinary. We really haven't seen anything like that. Nor have we seen uh, protests sustained for this long. Somebody said to me, well, haven't they now dissipated? Uh, a little bit in certain places, but in general, they continue. In Los Angeles, we have protests pretty much every day. Uh, Louisville is into its sixth week of protests. I mean, they, are, they really aren't going away, though I would say yes. The overall numbers of protests and numbers of people participating have dropped some. But it, this is still much, much more of a sustained movement than we, we've seen in the recent past. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, you know, it, it would be hard for it to just be sustained at this level indefinitely anyway. So that would be an, a sort of an unfair test in any case, uh, right? Yeah. Um, I, totally, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. yeah. The idea that movements are, you know, in the street every single day for years, that just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so why, what's your sense of why this is different then? What, you know, what, what would you point to as uh, maybe the, the most important uh, kind of factors in in distinguishing this from, let's say, the civil rights movement, or as you said, even from a few years ago. Yeah, I mean that's 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 the kind of really interesting question. I I would point to a few things. One, um, you know, the, the recent protests, the current protests rather, uh, occurred are occurring against the backdrop of two huge crises, or I'd, I'd actually say three. One, the pandemic, obviously. Yeah. And then secondly, the kind of economic, you know, freefall we're in, uh, courtesy of the pandemic. And then third, you know, Trump is in the White House. Um, and I really think for lots of young people in particular, you know, you see the uh, kind of uh, the, the, disparity in the impact of the pandemic cross class, you know, class disparities and racial disparities that kind of lays bare um, the kind of fault lines and divisions in, in American society, the inequities in American society, and especially the economic impact following from the pandemic. Um, and then you, you get 
um, Michael Floyd's death, or George Floyd's death, sorry, and it's like, really? Mm. So there's a kind of, you, your people are already, their awareness of injustice, their awareness of inequities has been sharpened by the pandemic and the economic, kind of related economic crisis and Trump's behavior in the face of all of this. And then that video really just, you know, uh, I, I think pushed people beyond some breaking point. So I think that's part of it, just the piling of crises one on top of another. Um, and so the, the protests wind up being really a vehicle for expressing outrage at a whole host of issues, economic inequality, obviously police violence against people of color, uh, but also just Trump in the White House. Um, so I think that's part of the story. The other thing I would point to is um, my daughter pointed this out because she was at the protests in LA pretty much every day and she's working from home. And she said, look, it's really easy to go to the protests. I mean, this is one of the you know, basic insights of social movement research is uh, it, it, people, it's, it's individuals who really have some degree of discretionary control over their time, who have more autonomy, if you will, who are in a best position to participate in movements. If you've got a demanding 40 hour work schedule, you have to go off to work, it's gonna be hard for you to free up the time to go to participate. But during the lockdown, as everybody's sheltering in place, it became quite easy for people to go to these protests. Um, you know, and for myself, I mean, I, I, I went to uh, a couple of the local ones, um, uh, which were also uh, strikingly large, uh, given the size of our community. Um, and just, you know, for reasons of age and so on, I, I stayed a little bit uh, at the outskirts of it. But um, uh, it, it, it is stunning to see the level of uh, commitment. Um, uh, and it's it's hard for me to uh, to you know sort of just say oh yeah these are a bunch of young people you know coming out because the weather is nice um uh, um uh so uh you know in in terms of the i mean a, a, your your really complex account in deeply divided off uh this uh, uh really dynamic that you argue has been shaping uh, U.S. party politics, or, or rather the relationship between the parties and social movements, um, really for decades, this, um, you know, with uh, racial issues being sort of the uh, a kind of a driving engine, uh, and then interacting with uh, sort of uh, regional uh, kind of um, uh, trends and, uh, and, and phenomena. Uh, do you think this round of protests or this movement, would you say that fits the, the pattern that you've outlined? Does it depart in any way? No, I don't think so. I mean, again, the argument in Deeply Divided is, at least one of the arguments is the one you mentioned, that race is really um, arguably the most important structuring principle in kind of partisan politics, party politics, electoral politics. Um, you know, You've got the New Deal coalition, which runs from Roosevelt's first election in 32 till Nixon is elected in 68, a real period of democratic dominance. And so what's that, what's that based on? Well, it's 
based on this odd coalition between Northern liberal labor Democrats, the folks we still associate with the party today, and Southern segregationists. And they're in the Democratic Party, not because they're embracing progressive politics, they're there because they hate the party of Lincoln, which they blame for the war of Northern aggression, right? Yeah. So race is central to that coalition. And you know the, all the presidents, all the Democratic presidents during that period, really are doing what they can to try to accommodate the regional sensibilities of the South. Um, but ultimately the civil rights movement makes it hard for them to do that. Johnson finally presses aggressively for civil rights reform. He angers the white South, which gets over its hatred of the party of Lincoln and shifts its electoral allegiance. And ever since 68, you know, the Republican party has been moving ever more sharply to the right, really on, on the basis of racial politics mm. and in an effort to kind of firm up support in the white South. We now think of the Republican party, it, its foundation is the South. Um, so again, we see race is central. And what's going on right now, uh, the protests are all about race and racial injustice. And those who are opposed to Trump, Democrats in particular, are embracing those protests and supporting them. And who's resisting? Well, Trump and his allies and the Republican Party. So we're still very much in that race region politics kind of framework. And in some ways, it's more naked than I've seen it in, in quite a while. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's... Uh, Exactly. I mean, uh, I when Deeply Divided was published, several people said, gee, that's a, you know, it's a terrific book, but boy, I think you overstate the importance of race. You know, surely there are other factors. And yes, of course there are. And I try to, I try to touch on those. But a couple of people in particular who had that critique, once these protests started, called me and said, you know, it is all about race. <laughs> I mean, it is, and it's because it's being laid bare, just as you said. And at the same time, as you were saying earlier, it's, it, it is also capturing all these other things that people are, uh, are upset about as well. Um, uh, you know, so I am still thinking of kind of this unique convergence of circumstances that you pointed to a few minutes ago that the precipitating factor is race um and at the same time one of the reasons we think that this uh, you know this movement uh, has the kind of momentum that it does is that it's sucking in all of these other oppositional energies right um, I mean, this is this is one similarity. I see many, many, many differences between the present moment and, say, the civil rights movement of the 1960s. W one similarity, though, is that you know the, the, we think of the 60s as um, you know not not just civil rights movement, but the the broader kind of collection of new left movements. Well, all of them were rooted in the civil rights struggle. So this was a case of the civil rights movement essentially catalyzing a whole host of other struggles. Mm. And we sort of see that happening again, a racial justice movement uh, basically, um, again, motivating 
protests that have multiple targets. It's not just about racial justice. It, it is about economic inequality. It is about um, sort of climate change. It is about the erosion of democracy in the United States, et cetera. And you've written elsewhere that one of the, uh, you know, uh, one of the reasons that uh, issues like this are able to gather energy is that uh, there are communities or uh, groups uh, or constituencies who can clearly own them or who can clearly identify them. So in this case, uh, you know, uh, uh, particularly Black Americans, people of color generally, uh, the you know, the police violence being very explicitly kind of disproportionately directed against them. Uh, and and um, in and and that's one of the things that uh, distinguishes this, let's say, from uh, say, climate change, which perhaps has not yet had that kind of like broad traction uh, because there isn't like one, one group that that's able to say this is about us. Um, it, did I characterize that correctly? Absolutely. Um, so you know, I, I so this does, I guess, perhaps um, should should we be a little concerned that some of this momentum may so so let's say in the best possible scenario the. Uh, you know, there's some sort of breakthrough in treatment or or vaccines um, uh, over the next few months, uh, and uh, the the other things that are bringing people out under this sort of umbrella um, uh, kind of lose some of this uh, like pungency. Um, is that is that a risk for the the you know the anti-police part of it or the, you know, the more explicit sort of anti-white supremacy part of it? Um, that's a great question. I, I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, I, I might worry if, I mean, let's root for a vaccine. <laughs> yes, not, of course. <laughs> let's not be sitting here going, oh, I hope they don't. You know, obviously we want them to find a vaccine, um, to, but I, it is an interesting kind of hypothetical. If uh, somehow a vaccine became widely available sometime in the next two, three months, not gonna happen, but imagine it did, what would the impact be? I think um, the, you know, uh, the focus on police reform, I think that that the energy around that issue would more or less continue. It's my sense, um, this is the other, other thing that really makes the current protest really unusual, is that you know, most street protests, even large protests that are sustained for some period of time, typically do not set in motion as a period of significant sustained social political change. This one already has done that. Mm. Um, you see lots of efforts at, we've already had lots of instances of reforms of police practices, some level of defunding of police in a number of places with efforts continuing in that vein. And I think those would continue. Um, 
the other issues, the attention to other issues like economic inequality might dissipate a bit. I could see some of that energy maybe dissipating, but not on the core issue, I think, of police violence um, and police reform. I, I, I think you're right. I, I also, you know, it just the few people I've talked to who are involved in, uh, in, uh, in the sort of specifics of, uh, you know, uh, protesting against city councils and so on. I uh, have seemed really wise to this from the start and are doing their best to make this about a uh, a broader kind of, uh, you know, converse, or sort of conversation or conflict uh, about priorities generally so that it, you know, uh, it's not just about, say, defunding the police. It's about, you know, making other things stronger. Um, uh, and uh, and and I, I hope that that serves as some kind of you know um, a kind of uh, buffer against any kind of uh, sort of uh, just reduction of energy when some some aspects of the situation improve. Um, yeah. Um, yes. uh, 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 one of the things I I really appreciated uh, in in the book is. Uh, the pointing to the, you know, I, I mean, I, I grew up learning civil rights history, and I think pretty much the way most of us do in in high school, um, and uh, you know, we do we do learn about uh, you know the Klan and the segregationists and so on, um, but you actually call the segregationist counter movement to the civil rights movement. You give it. Uh, you 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 bas- you and uh, Katrina Clues argue that um, it's really like a significant uh, counter. I mean, it's it's such a significant reaction that uh, it it pulls the Republican Party away from uh, the political center. And I was really struck by that. Um, and I was wondering if if you think that we might be in for another counter movement of that kind of magnitude or or impact or if again this time might be might be different even in that regard well i mean i think i mean trumpism is a movement i mean the republican party isn't it really isn't a part of traditional party anymore it is um a populist movement i mean Mm -hmm. that's and so yet we are seeing you know, to the extent that there's opposition to the current protests and to the various uh, sort of movements that um, cluster under the umbrella of the protests, it, it's from the right, it's from Trump, Trump and his supporters. So we, you know, we are seeing a significant kind of counter movement um, operating in the present. I mean, it's not spawning big counter demonstrations, but neither really did the white resistance movement, what I, what Karina and I call the white resistance movement to the civil rights movement. But believe me, that was a movement and it was mm. nationwide. And it would, it would kind of emerge with great, um, great ferocity in certain places in, in the North like Boston when there was uh, sort of busing, school busing was implemented or in the suburbs of Chicago when King led open housing marches there. There was no lack of flashpoints during the period. 
Um, and, you know, so we, th that movement, that kind of broad um, sort of uh, white supremacist movement, I don't know what else to call it, yeah. white power movement um, is still very much with us in the guise of Trumpism. Um, and you can bet we're going to, it's going to be on full display as we head into November. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I think you're, you're absolutely right about that. You know, I'm wondering how far, I mean, given that the Republican, the, the work you described that the segregationist counter movement did back then in terms of, uh, you know, pulling the Republican Party away. I mean, I'm wondering how much room there is, for, you know, within the party for for that. And so it, it does make you wonder whether it's, um, uh, you know, uh, some kind of rump political formation left at the end of it, or, ex you know, um, uh, might there be sort of, uh, if there's a whole set of unemployed um, or disgruntled, you know, police sort of across the country might they be more of an armed sort of um uh you know wing of a counter movement than there was the last time it i don't know i'm just speculating here well i i mean i i don't think that is um uh i don't think your speculation is wild at all um I expect that in the in the aftermath of the election, um, you know, we think things are crazy now. I think the middle of November post-election is going potentially going to be much crazier than what we're in, much more divided, much more and much more potential for violence than we have right now. Mm. You know, imagine if Trump loses. Um, uh, you know, what the, what's the outcome is likely to be. He is certainly not going to do the conventional thing and say, you know, I've got, I've got to congratulate Senator Biden or Vice President Biden on running a great race. And, you know, we'll, I'm urging my supporters to get behind the new president and we're inviting him to the White House first, you know, so we can talk about common ground and we're not going to see any of that. He's going to deny that he lost the election, that it was fraud, that it was the, all those mail-in ballots. And I could imagine him urging his Second Amendment supporters to come to his defense. Hmm. You know, that's not an improbable scenario. And some of them might take him up on that. So, and, and you know, imagine the other, the other scenario, which I also don't think is wildly far-fetched, and that is that he winds up winning. You say, well, how can he possibly win given where the polls are? Well, first of all, we've got a three and a half months to go. Yeah. But beyond that, and this is the point I made in this, the Jacobin article, is, you know, the pandemic is still gonna be raging when we go to the polls. And it creates a, a, a real opportunity for Trump and his allies to dramatically suppress the suppress turnout. And in the modern period, turnout, high levels of turnout are key to democratic victories. So if somehow you really make it hard for people to, to vote, you oppose mail ballots wherever you can. And on the actual election day in those um, 
in those states where or, or locations where Republicans really control the electoral process, you reduce the number of polling places, you reduce the hours that people can vote, you force them to stand online and, they, and, and essentially choose between their health and their right to vote. Mm. Um, so there's, there's real opportunities for electoral mischief here. And if somehow that kind of transparent suppression effort yielded some narrow victory for Trump, imagine the anger that will you know, follow from that. I can see again, people taking to the streets in large numbers and potential for clashes there. So um, I, I, I think, um, you know, I am afraid of what might happen post-election, mm. just regardless of outcome. Mm. Oh. Well, that, that's, that's a very sobering counterpoint to the, you know, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, watching the polls right now is, is, uh, you know, I, I find myself definitely, uh, you know, lapsing into sort of, uh, uh, some kind of like, oh yeah, how, you know, this is, it's, it's a, it's almost like it's a done deal, but it really isn't, um, uh, and even, even if it is, we don't actually know what happens after. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah. I mean, you know, the, 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 the polls tell us, I mean, we don't, we don't, if we, if we voted essentially in poll fashion, that is everybody got on their computer a ballot and you could, then I think the polls would tell us a lot about what's going to happen. But the actual mechanics the act of, of, of the election, are, there are no real relationship to polls uh, at all. Um, so it's all about turnout. And again, if, if the pandemic is really still raging, which certainly looks like it's going to be, um, uh, it's really hard to know um, you know, what, what, it, what impact that will have on turnout. So, and again, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember who said this. So it was David Frum, who's, a, you know, a fairly conservative columnist for a writer for Atlantic Magazine. Yeah. But he's a really, really savvy guy. And I remember listening to him, and this is months ago, way before the protest started or the pandemic. And, but I, just in an offhanded way, he was on some talk show or some, some news program. And he said, you know, um, Trump and his allies um, cannot stay in power democratically. They're perfectly prepared to, to, to use non-democratic means to do that. So where there are opportunities to, you know, um, to mess with the electoral mechanism, or maybe even invite, <laughs> sort of encourage at some level, more Russian interference in the 2020 election. Hmm. Um, we just can't rule anything out at this point. Uh, the good news, I think, is that all of the, all the energy that um, you, we see in the streets or we saw in the streets um, in, uh, you know, over the last two months or so, I think that's not gonna go away. It's gonna provide powerful motivation for um, progressives really across the board to make sure they vote. Uh, they will do everything they can to vote, I suspect, even if, even if their risk, they feel like there's a, a certain kind of health risk involved. So I think turnout, it will be 
will likely still be high e even with these efforts to try to suppress the vote. But we, we can't, we really can't know. Uh, in my view, the, the outcome has to be so decisive as to really eliminate much possibility for kind of um, resistance to the results post-election. If it's close, I, I, I'm very sure that Trump will insist that, uh, you know, the election was stolen and he's not leaving and so forth. Yeah, that's right. The margin uh, has to be large and it has to be large in the places that, you know, uh, that uh, that swung it last time. I mean, it, exactly. it, it yeah. Um, uh, so, Doug, shifting gears just a little bit to a, uh, a little more of a, a geopolitical angle, um, uh, one of the other things I, I really enjoyed in, in the book was uh, this explicit bringing in of the Cold War as uh, one of the, during the civil rights uh, era, um, off as, as one of the reasons that uh, the uh, Democratic Party was was responsive, uh, or both parties were responsive, I think you argue. Um, right. Uh, and does that have any analog uh, today? Um, uh, you well, know, let's say the Democrats, uh, you know, win in November. Um, well, I mean, there is a, there's a one real obvious similarity between civil rights protests in the 60s and the current protests. Um, you know, there was tremendous um, world, uh, international pressure on the United States, condemnation of the United States in the 60s for racism. Um, I mean, any kind of major incident of racial violence, whether it was um, uh, the burning of Freedom Ride buses or the bombing of a church in Birmingham, Alabama, or the attack on marchers in Selma, all of these images, um, you know, were front page news all around the world. And there was just really incredible international pressure on the United States to put its kind of racial house in order and as you say, Republican and Democratic presidents alike after the Cold War started really couldn't afford not to be to, to be responsive to that pressure because the, the Cold War more or less demanded it. We were locked into this ideological struggle with yeah. the Soviet Union for influence around the globe. American racism was a real foreign policy liability. You know, it's not that all these presidents suddenly saw the light in some moral sense, but they essentially advocating for at least limited civil rights reform was a critical component of Cold War foreign policy. So, you know, uh, and now we shift to the present, the demonstrations around the world mm. in the wake of George Floyd's death, you know. So here again, we have the world watching American style racism and condemning it. The difference is Trump couldn't, couldn't give a damn. Exactly. You know, he's just, just a kind of arrogant disregard for not just um, kind of a popular protests in the United States, but for whatever's happening overseas. I mean, yeah, I'm, a, I'm not even sure he's aware of it. And if he is, he doesn't care about it. So, 
you know, we're not going to get some kind of major embrace of the need for civil rights reform or additional reform, social justice, uh, racial justice reform, certainly not from the Republicans because of international pressure. Um, if Biden's elected, I think he will move uh, very aggressively in the direction of more uh, kind of racial reforms, but probably not because of the international pressure, simply because his electoral coalition will demand that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's, you know, that's, uh, that's hopeful that even in the absence of a kind of uh, some kind of uh, ideological imperative um, and certainly you know, the absence of a commitment from the current administration to respond to any such uh, imperative that um, uh, just the broader international visibility um, and domestic accountability should, you know, keep this engine going for a while. Um, uh, I, 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 I certainly hope that's the case. Um, there's, uh, there's one more, uh, the, um, and, I, and I'll say this is, Perhaps the most striking, uh, what people like me would call uh, descriptive data depictions um, that I've seen, um, and I wanted to ask you about it. So I'll try to describe it in words. So um, you have this uh, uh, this graph showing a uh, sort of a, a U-shaped uh, kind of a trend over time um, in both political polarization and income inequality in the U.S. Um, and the bottom of the U uh, for both of those curves is sort of the post-war, uh, uh, you know, post-World War II, uh, beginning of the Cold War sort of uh, era. Um, right. uh, and uh, it's, it's I, I, you know, I've never seen those trends uh, overlaid like that. Uh, and, and, and you argue that, um, uh, that, it's not a coincidence uh, that they coincide and that the political polarization is uh, is actually driving the income inequality. So first of all, did I characterize that correctly? Um, do you think- Yeah, still, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't say that's the only causal force, but I do think it is a very important one. That's mm. for sure. And and can you, can you just summarize for us how you think that the polarization sort of uh, you know contributes to to the increase uh, to the increase in, in income inequality? Yeah, I mean, I, I, a little bit. I mean, it, it's a complicated issue. I think a lot of things are going on. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, and but yeah, let let me at least give a flavor of the argument. So, uh, you know. Uh, again, the, the central argument in Deeply Divided is that there's this really significant transformation or shift in the racial geography of American politics that occurs in the 60s, uh, largely because of the civil rights movement. Uh, again, the Democratic parties or Johnson's uh, advocacy of civil rights reform angers white Southerners, um, for the first time in history, they kind of hold their noses collectively and get over their traditional hatred of the Republican party and begin to shift their partisan affiliation. And uh, Sir Nixon, when he runs in 68, 
he's the first Republican candidate who really tries to, I mean, really recognizes the opportunity here to appeal to not just the white South, but racial conservatives around the country. And his standard stump speech, you know, in it, he would say something like, you know, the New Deal was, was um, uh, uh, um, you know, was overwhelmingly positive because it was um, uh, the few were asked to give for the benefit of the deserving many. Um, but where the Democrats have really gone off the rails uh, under Kennedy and Johnson is that uh, the many are being asked to give for the benefit of the undeserving few. Mm. And he didn't, you know, use racial terms, but in the, you know, the divided, incredibly racialized period of the late 60s, with urban riots and black power and the Black Panthers, everybody knew the sort of the code of what he was really saying. Mm. And the Republicans consistently rhetorically from Nixon through Trump have embraced that idea of two Americas. There's one America with overwhelmingly, I mean, with hardworking, deserving, oh, and by the way, mostly white Americans. And then there's a host of others uh, illegals, um, you know, people of color, um, you can continue to think of others, but you, groups that are not deserving. Think of Romney more recently with this 42%. That's right. 42% are already captured by the Democrats. They're not deserving. They just want it. You, they just want, they need to be supported by your hard-earned tax dollars. So that argument has been critical in shaping tax policy and social policies by Republicans who be, become increasingly dominant in policy terms, Nixon forward. So once you den deny, you know, kind of uh, equal status to all these undeserving groups, you've created an argument for reducing taxes because why in the world should we raise taxes to support all these undeserving Americans who mostly, <laughs> who disproportionately are people of color, citizens of color. So that's the argument about how this, you know, transformation of the racial geography, the, the partisan structure of American politics, how it sets in motion a, a move away from the kind of inclusive Leveling, leveling the playing field we associate with the New Deal, and not just the New Deal, the sort of New Deal coalition um, over the, that, those four decades, where there's expansions of social programs and high tax rates, et cetera. By the way, and those, those high tax rates are supported by both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, that's right. The highest tax rate um, during that whole period from 32 to 68 is on Eisenhower's watch. Eisenhower also expands social security programs faster or more than any other president during that period. So there's broad bipartisan support for thinking of the federal government as a vehicle for leveling the playing field, trying to create more opportunity, more inclusion in the United States. But once the Republicans start shifting sharply to the right on race, they also embrace a very different set of social and tax policies 
based on this notion that there are deserving Americans and undeserving Americans. And we're still there. I mean, people called what sort of the coded language that Nixon used or Reagan or, or Romney kind of dog whistle politics that only, you know, they were talking in code, but the people who wanted to hear it could hear it. Well, Trump replaced the dog whistle with a bullhorn. I mean, he's just could not be more explicit about his disdain for all these undeservings, undeserving Americans. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, uh, as um, uh, you know, my my sort of uh, you know instinct as uh, as um, you know, since we're in the same business, is to uh, say, okay, so can I can I is there a way I could flip this story around and say, uh, you know, income inequality is going up uh, over a certain period for a, you know, for a bunch of complicated reasons, um, and it does need to be politically legitimated. You know, it's a democratic society, um, and um, uh, so you know, it, uh, it, it sort of, uh, you know, the people who are benefiting from it. Uh, use you know use race and and whatever they need to do um, uh, you know to increase the sort of political polarization and so on anyway it's just a way of saying I, I'm wondering if you could imagine it sort of working the other way as well um, oh I, I actually think the relations are probably more reciprocal um, yeah. There's lots of fact, like I said, lots of moving parts. I'm just trying to highlight the what I think is an important piece of the puzzle, which not a lot of people do talk about, but how this shift in partisan politics in the 60s um, set in motion a real shift in social and tax policies within the Republican Party, linked in part to the, to the party's effort to, to um, court racial conservatives. Um, so I think that's an important piece of it, but I'm certainly not suggesting it's the whole of it. I came away from this conversation with a greatly enriched understanding of the relationship between two huge social movements in the US, Black Americans' struggle for their rights and the white supremacist response, and the evolution of the two big political parties. Both of these dynamics are intensifying now in jail time and are likely to continue doing so in the lead up to and the aftermath of the presidential election. As socialists, we will either pay careful attention to these developments now or pay with a loss in political credibility later. In the next episode, posted concurrently with this one, I discuss the protests and aftermath with Rachel Himes, a defund activist in New York City. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day -day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>